We're in uh, week eight of our series through both books, Ezra and Nehemiah. They were originally written as one book, so that's how we're going to treat it. This is going to take us up till about uh, first, second week of June. First, second week of June. Well, in the 1980s, people bought red Porsches, sports cars, right? If you guys know what I'm talking about. Uh, My friend Paul Hoffman, this would have been third, fourth grade, my best bud, his dad had a cherry red Porsche. Uh, This thing was parked in the garage. It was the only thing in the garage. It was covered. It It came with instructions that said nobody touch it, nobody look at it. Right. It was one of those things. Right. It was to stay out of the sun. It wasn't going to be in the driveway with all the other normal, horrible cars that they drove. It was it was kind of a museum piece uh, for this dude. And, and, and that's what we understand when we go to a museum. Right. Like a Picasso and a Rembrandt. If you've ever been to the Cleveland Museum of Art, it's amazing. They got all these just classic paintings. Um, but if you're up there. The whole idea is, is to view, is to study, to appreciate, but not to touch. At no time does the museum curator come in and say, you know what, it's cool. Go ahead and just put your hands on that, you know, Monet. I, I don't even know what a Monet is, right? I just said that to make me sound important. But, um, but this kind of gives you this really imperfect illustration of what the concept of holiness is, of what holiness is, right? Paul Tripp, this is how he defines Holiness, I thought this was good. So instead of just coming up with my own definition, I'm just going with Paul here. And this is how he defines it. He says, it's to be cut off or separate from everything else. It means to be in a class of your own, distinct from anything that has ever existed or will ever exist. He goes on to say, to be holy means to be entirely morally pure all the time and in every way possible. No problem, right? But we are not perfectly holy like God, like the way that we understand who God is in the sense that he is in a class of his own. He is distinct from everything else that has ever existed or will ever exist. That, by the way, he is also the one responsible for creating. We are not perfectly holy like God, which means some of the implications of that is that we are not good at seeing our sin or being sorrowful over our sin. And what's interesting about sin, about all sin, is that before it's against anybody else, so before you sin and it's something that wounds or damages somebody else, which it does, but before even that, it's primarily against God. Our sin, first and foremost, is against God. Man, I just think we need to take a second to reflect on that for a minute. Like all the things we do tangibly, we see how other people are affected by it. So, so whatever's coming out of me in a sinful sense, like some of you guys are going to be affected by that in a negative way. But even before that, before all else, who I'm really sinning against is God. And anything that's against God is always going to result in harm against others. In Psalm 51.4, David, King David, he repented to the Lord by saying this. He said, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that 
you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So our guilt is first and foremost against God, which is why one of the unique character traits of an authentic Christian is that we are people of repentance. Why? Because we are people who at the same time are pursuing holiness. We are pursuing this character trait that we have in us by virtue of the finished work of Christ, that we are becoming holy like God. We are becoming more distinct. We are becoming a people who aren't just pursuing our passions that lead us away from God, but our passions are being redirected and they're being reordered to fall in line with that of God. Does that make sense? We are people of repentance because we are a people who pursue holiness. Man, every day I take my dishes, take my coffee mugs, grab my dish soap, right? Get it under some hot water, feels good. Right? I don't know how it happens, but somehow the same stack of dishes gets dirty every day. Every single day. It must be because I like to eat. Right? That would probably be the logical conclusion. But those dishes need daily cleansing. They need to be daily washed or they're, or they're going to get coated with all kinds of grime. And by grime, I mean all the desserts I like to eat. Right? All that kind of grime. In fact, when we talk about confession, we talk about daily confession, we talk about daily coming before the Lord to, to cleanse our spirit and our soul of the sins that can sort of coat it. Well, we just did that a few minutes ago, didn't we? When Scott prayed for us, he, he prayed a corporate prayer of confession, which was this acknowledgement that the people to your right and left elbows are people in need of going before the Lord, confessing their sin and then receiving that forgiveness and that cleansing that comes with confessing our sins. So we, we act that out. We act that out every Sunday. First John 1, 8 through 10, Jesus says, John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Then he says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then he goes on to say this. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This goes back to what I just read David said in Psalm 51, when he said, against you only I have sinned, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. If we say that we aren't sinners. If we say that, you know, look, man, I see those people over there. I see these guys with these capital crimes. I'm not one of them. I don't really know what I'm going before the Lord to confess. Well, what we're doing is we're, we're calling him a liar. We're saying, God, in the end, your judgments are not true. In the end, you're really not that blameless because you have told us we're sinners. So for us to say, you know, maybe huge implications with that huge problems exist in that. Confession is our way of saying, I'm guilty. And like we sang a minute ago, I need God's mercy. So this means that confessing our sin is a practice. It becomes part of our daily spiritual renewal. But here's the question that we need to answer, okay? Because this might just kind of surface, pop up in your heart this morning. And it's this, if I've already confessed my sin and received forgiveness for salvation, that moment 
when I came into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, why do we have to keep confessing? What's that all about? Well, here's how John Piper answers that question. He says, confessing our sin is the agreement with God that we have sinned and that it must be fought and killed. It's getting brutal here this morning, right? And then he says this, it is not the basis of our forgiveness. It is one of the traits that show we are truly in Christ where all our sins are covered by his blood. So as we get to Ezra chapter nine, this is what we're going to see. We're going to learn that the Israelites had been intermarrying with the pagan nations around them, which was something God had forbidden them to do all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter seven. When he said this, he's very specifically, very clearly, God told the children of Israel, he said, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And then he says, then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. This tells us something about the seriousness of our sin and what we're going to see here in a second as we dive into Ezra 9, the seriousness of our confession of our sin before a God who is holy takes sin seriously and just doesn't tend to mess around with that stuff the way that we do. Now, let me get one thing clear, because when I start using phrases like intermarrying with pagan nations, I want to make sure that we're clear before we move on that this has nothing to do with, say, interracial marriage, right? That's something that the Bible welcomes. That's something that we should welcome. So, so we want to make sure that we're not tilting into that kind of heresy, right, with that. This was about God's people marrying with other people that were holding to foreign gods, that were worshiping foreign gods, that were not submitting their lives, that were not serving the true and the living God, and therefore presented a threat to Israel of being pulled into idolatry, being pulled away from holiness. So that's where we're at today uh, in Ezra. Last week, just to give you a little bit of a recap, we saw how Ezra... This priest, this scribe of Israel who was in Babylon led a second wave of Israelites back to Jerusalem. And one of the things we saw with Ezra as he led the second wave back was that the hand of God was on him. And he kept writing about that in chapter seven, how, how, in chapter eight, how the hand of God was on him, which moved him to a few things last week as he got ready to embark back to Jerusalem. It moved him to courage, we saw. It also moved him to prayer and fasting. He paused before he took that journey, before he took a step into that journey, but he also took that step. So the fact that God's hand was upon him, it equipped him into courage, prayer, fasting, and having um, the bravery and the courage to take that step forward, trusting that the Lord would help and protect him, which he did. So now Ezra has settled in. He's made it back to Jerusalem. He is doing what he set out to do, which is to teach the people the law of God. And what happens is he receives a report from one of the officials about some shameful actions that both the people and the priests have taken. Ezra 9, I'm going to read it. After these things had 
been done, the officials approached me, this is Ezra, and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithfulness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. So that the leaders were doing, more than anybody else, it was the leaders of the people that were diving in and marrying these women who did not share their faith. Verse three, as soon as I heard this, Ezra says, I tore my garment and my cloak. I pulled hair from my head and beard and I sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn And I fell on my knees and I spread out my hands to the Lord my God saying, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt and for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the land to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. Verse 8, but now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land that you are entering, take possession of it, It is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons and never seek their peace or prosperity that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. Verse 13, and after all that has come upon us, for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this. Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, The God of Israel, you are just. For we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. This is the word of the Lord. So this is what we're going to unpack for the next few minutes 
Maybe you don't know how to come before the Lord with your sin. We just assume that, right? We're, we're kind of hanging around here in church culture and we talk about confession. We talk about coming before the Lord and coming clean before him. I don't want just us to assume that we just all know how to do that. Like we're just lockstep in that. Like we all got the, the confessing our sin manual on our nightstand next to the bed at home. Maybe we don't know how to do that. It can seem daunting. Maybe it seems confusing. How did Ezra confess Israel's sins before the Lord? That's the question we want to look into and answer. And then how should we expect the Lord to respond when we confess our sin? All right, that's what we're going to do for the next few minutes. The first thing is this. Ezra recognizes the severity of Israel's sin when you look at verses 3 through 7. We have the tendency, you and me, to shrug at our sin, to lighten the effect that it has on others and pretend that God probably doesn't notice because he's God and surely he has bigger things to look out than, than just my petty sins, right? But look at what happens here to Ezra. The minute he learns what has been going on in his absence, he has a physical reaction. Don't miss that, right? This dude tears his clothes. He pulls his hair out. It says that he sits appalled. I mean, I'm not doing any of those three things when I start considering my sin, right? He has a physical reaction. He falls on his knees. He lays out on the ground flat in a posture of penitence. I mean, don't, don't miss the imagery of that. Get that lodged into your imagination as you're picturing sort of the movements that Ezra is going through as he considers what the people have been engaged in after God has shown so much mercy in bringing them back to Jerusalem. He, he only, it's like he can't believe it. He's so shocked that this stuff has been going on in his absence. He recognizes the severity of Israel's sin. And what does he do? Well, you can do a lot of things when you recognize the severity of your sin. You can run the other way. You can try to pretend that it's not happening. You can try to work really hard to try to say, yeah, but I'm doing these good things over here, right? So that must kind of like balance out the scales. But Ezra just humbles himself. Ezra humbles himself. He doesn't even speak a word yet. It says he is blushing because their guilt has spread far and wide. And what's happened in their captivity has led them to utter shame. We've probably become a society that doesn't know how to blush anymore, right? We've become a society that thinks all shame is bad shame. That there is some shaming things that we got to be careful of, that we can bestow on other people. But there is a godly shame that comes with conviction. When we realize the depth and the severity of our sin, it leads us to what it leads Ezra to, which is a posture of sobriety. You guys hear me with that? He is blushing. This is a man who understands the holiness and majesty of God. And he's not dismissing it. 
nor is he diminishing it. And it reminds me how differently this is to many of my responses to sin, which is some version of, I'm sorry if you feel this way, but... Boy, that's so light, isn't it? Isn't that so thin? That's such a different response to what we see going on with Ezra, which is just something that affects his entire being as he considers the holiness of God. What we see in Ezra is a godly recognition of sin. And unless we have a godly recognition of our sin, we will not have godly repentance. Second Corinthians seven, Paul wrote the church and he said, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. You see what he calls out there? He says, there's another kind of grief. Like y'all can have a particular kind of grief that says, oh shoot, I wish I wouldn't have gotten caught. I wish I wouldn't have gotten called out. I feel some measure of guilt, but at the end of the day, I just want it to go away. I'm not looking to take any actions that's going to cleanse me of the guilt that I feel that needs to be removed so that I can live the way that God intended me to live. Some of us need to wake up By some of us, I mean me first. We need to wake up to the severity of our sin. We need to do some spiritual inventory. We need to see what areas we are not obeying God's commands so that we have godly grief like Ezra. There is so much hope in godly grief. Godly grief is so hopeful because it's the very heart of God for us to be deeply sorrowful over our sin. But you gotta be willing to see it. Well, how do we see it? How do we see our sin? Well, some things we wanna do is we wanna look, wanna look at our passions. You wanna take really close watch over the things you're passionate about. You wanna look at your loves. What is the first thing that your mind snaps back to constantly. Take notice of those things. Give those things significance. Because sometimes, because sin is deceptive and our heart is deceptive, man, we just don't see it. Other times it's blatant, like the Israelites. They knew they should not be intermarrying. So Ezra, first off, he recognizes the severity of Israel's sin And then secondly, he considers the punishment that they deserve in verses 13 through 15. So part of understanding the severity of our sin is understanding what we deserve because of it. It's the gloomiest message that you're probably going to get. Ezra says, after everything we have done, listen to what he says. You have actually punished us less than we deserve. How are we still standing is what Ezra's saying. Ezra's saying, how are we still making the trek to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple? How are we still breathing, is what Ezra's saying. 
Do you see that? Do you see see the understanding that Ezra has of the severity of our sin against a holy God? How are we still standing? What right do we have to even exist? Is what Ezra is saying. So great was their guilt that God would have been justified to wipe them off the face of the earth. Ezra says, none can stand before you because of our guilt. David said the same thing in Psalm 130. He said, Lord, if you should mark iniquities or sin, who could stand? But with you, he said, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. We are dismissive of our sin, but it's our sin that gives us no standing before God. Do we understand who God is? And for those of us who have grown up in church or different traditions, and God may have been presented to you as somebody that you were never taught to fear, never taught to have any awe of, never taught to have any reverence for. Why? Because we're afraid of that language like I'm afraid of preaching this message to you all right now. That's why. Right? Because we want God to be a little more cuddly than that. But we have to take God in the fullness that scripture provides for us to know everything there is to know about his character. So God doesn't have a percentage of holiness and a percentage of mercy. He's all holy and he's all merciful. And there's implications to both of those realities. And this is what Ezra is presenting to us right now. Do we know who God is? Do we understand his power and his majesty and his sovereignty and his holiness? You just all took a breath because God said, breathe. I'm going to give you a breath. That was intentional. That was intentional, what he just did there with that breath. And then right now, the second breath you're taking after I just said that. Do we understand who God is? Do you understand who you are? Because with understanding who God is, we get a better idea of who we are. You and I, far from being entitled Man, we deserve punishment for our disobedience. We are born, listen, with zero standing before God. I mean, let me get even more grim while we're trending on death here for a minute. Psalm 14 tells us the Lord looks down from heavens on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt There is none who does good, not even one. None of us get to say, what's the big deal, God? We don't get to say that. Our sin deserves justice. And there would be no hope for Israel or for us if God's character didn't also include mercy, which is the act of God not giving us what we deserve. We need to recover an understanding of what we deserve due to the severity of our sin. I hope we can 
I hope we can recover that at substance, not as a way to become doom merchants, not as a way to become the gloomiest church in Ashland County, but for the opposite, right? Why do we sing his mercy is more? More than what? What does it need to be more than? It needs to be greater than our sin, which casts us into judgment before God. But his mercy is more. And that's the third thing we see here is that Ezra acknowledges the abundance of God's mercy. It's all death. It's all destruction and hopelessness if God's mercy wasn't there to cover our faithlessness. This is what he says in verse 8 and 9. He says, but now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, and yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection, Judea and Jerusalem. God had granted them a remnant, a line from which Christ would come, be born as their deliverer. The abundance of God's mercy, the abundance of God's steadfast love meant that God had not forsaken them, but had preserved them even in their faithlessness. That's good news today, that God preserves us even in our faithlessness. His mercy was more. Do we get the importance of this in our life? Without God's mercy, we are as good as dead. Our guilt is that severe. Our punishment is that deserved. But his mercy is more. His grace is greater. His love is steady despite our sin. When we come to him, acknowledging the depths of it. Jesus received the punishment we deserved for our guilt because God preserved a remnant. Remember Noah. We remember Noah and how God judged the entire world for their sin, but saved Noah and his family. That's eight people who were declared righteous due to God's mercy and grace from an entire world that received his wrath. I did a funeral here yesterday, and it struck me as I was given a really short message through Psalm 23 about how serious God is about life and death. How serious he is about life, death, and our sin. Far more serious than, than we are. He feels those things far more deeply even than we do. Ezra acknowledged the abundance of God's love and mercy, all was not lost, all was not hopeless. God had shown himself to be the God that cares, to be the God that stays with his people despite his people straying from their God. So how are we gonna receive this message today? How will you receive this, these words 
What's the message called? Guilt, confession, and mercy. It was called guilt and confession, and then we made a last-minute change and added the mercy, and uh, that was a good call. That was a good call. Yeah, there's not a lot of rocket science going on behind all this stuff, guys, just so you know. Do you understand, do I understand, listen, what would happen if we responded like Ezra to our sin? Don't pull your hair out. But the call of Christ always begins with a call to repentance. And that call continues all throughout your life, which is why we rehearse that call on Sundays. We don't do it just so that we have something to do in the service order. We do it because we want that to be the daily pattern of your life, to come before the Lord in confession. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you, as theologian John Owen, old school guy, famously said. Turn with me to 1 Peter as we close this. I'm going to make a hard right, go all the way to the end of the New Testament, book of 1 Peter. Because this is an encouragement to us from Peter, who was speaking to a church of people who were suffering. He was speaking to a people who were tempted to compromise. And in verse 14 of 1 Peter 1, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. It's that before-after reality of being a Christian, but still living in the tension of our sin. And then in 15, he says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your contact, conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am am holy. This is a very inclusive message, by the way, meaning nobody is excluded from God's mercy. Nobody's excluded from becoming God's holy people if we stand before him in confession and repentance. But the messaging that you receive and I receive is not this. It's not a call to holiness. It's not a call of acknowledging your sin and confessing your sin. The messaging you receive, it's kind of like this quote that I read from Kim Kardashian yesterday, <laughs> which again is woman made in God's image. But this is what she said. She said, this year is about team me. Now, I show that to Melissa, I roll my eyes, I laugh, and then I go, oh, you mean kind of like your year, Ronnie? Kind of like the team me reality that you live in, right? Oh, man. The problem is that there's not a lot of space for confession and repentance on team me, right? Team me is about achieving personal happiness over pursuing God's holiness. Team me is what leads to captivity. I saw this Oakley sunglasses ad that said, you know, the big tagline, which sounds like all the taglines now for stuff like that was be who you are, right? And I mean, that sounds good. I mean, I want to be who I am. I don't know who that is yet, but someday when I find that out, I want to be who I am. 
Except for the Bible says who you are is the problem. Holiness is the heart of the issue. And confession is what leads us down that path. Confession is what leads us to rebuilding and restoration and renewal through God's kindness. Because it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And it's his mercy that sustains us through it. So just think how different things would be if we were a church that believed this and practiced this and had the same kind of awe for the holiness and the majesty of God that Ezra does. Think what that would mean for us. How different might things be in your life if you took the holiness of God seriously and with sobriety? What would that do to all the things in your life that you feel like are binding up in you? All the things in your life that you can't really make any sense of because you feel stuck? Life is about feeling stuck too. So just because Ezra did this doesn't mean he never felt stuck again. But what do we do for our stuckness? I don't know if that's a word. What do we do for it though? What do you do when you're stuck? Where do you go? What are you doubling down on? Where are you trying to find some sense of affirmation or it's okay because at least, at least, at least I'm, I'm doing this over here. That's the way of the world. Ezra sat appalled. And in the end, God's mercy was more. Jesus is God's premier act of mercy for you. That's the most important thing I'm going to say this morning, by the way. Jesus Christ is God's supreme act of mercy so that he could build and preserve a holy remnant that he calls the church. That's you. That's me. So when we take communion, which we're going to do here in one minute, we are remembering the death of a holy God for the sake of our holiness. How can we not take our sin seriously when Jesus paid so great a price for it so that we might not be separated from God? So as we take of the elements today, as we drink of the cup, as we eat of the bread, these are symbolic things that we do so that we remember the death of Christ. We remember the price that he paid. Jesus said, do this as often as you remember my death. You remember the future that I have made for you because of my death. You have a hope. You have a mercy. You have a grace. So I'm going to invite the band up. I'm going to invite our ushers up. How we do it here at Substance, if this is your first time, is when the band starts playing, you can just get up and get in line. We have a station, two stations here, one in the back, and you will take the elements, and then you can find anywhere you want in the warehouse. Find somebody that you can take the elements with, maybe say a short prayer with, give a hug to, and remember the death of Christ and the resurrection together. Remember the mercy that God has given to you. Remember how it's been extended to you despite the punishment 
that we deserved. Now, this is for God's people. These are for people that have made that commitment to Christ, that have trusted Jesus for their salvation, that have gone before him in confession, said, Jesus, I need you. I confess my sins. I know in and of myself, I have no possibility to be right before you. If you're not making that decision and that commitment, we just ask you, you hold back. I have to say that to you because this is for people who have embraced the gospel, but you can embrace the gospel. Today is the day of salvation, scripture tells us. Today is that day that you can embrace the truth and the mercy and the grace of Jesus. And then in two weeks, dude, you're in line with us. And then we're going to dump you in that tank too and get you baptized. That's going to be sweet. <laughs> but I would encourage you to go before the Lord, understanding your sin with sobriety, but also understanding the joy and the hope of his mercy. That is what we are all about here. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that Jesus is your premier act of mercy in our lives and that because of his death, we have life and we have hope. Lord, for those who have not received that life and that hope, would you work in such a way in their hearts today that they would repent that they would believe the gospel, that they would trust Jesus for their salvation. Lord, would you open up our hearts to remember that this is all of us in desperate need of your mercy, in desperate need of daily confession, in desperate need of seeing our sin as being as severe as it is so that we can see your mercy for being as big and as overwhelming as it is. So God, would you do that in our hearts and our minds today as we go before you, thanking you for your sacrifice, thanking you for your shed blood and your broken body, thanking you that you are the nourishment that we need in our spiritual bones and that we are living that out in obedience before you as we take of these elements now. So walk before us, we pray in Christ's name, amen.